the Anesthesia Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Matt Wiles. I'm one of the editors of the journal Anesthesia, and I'm delighted to be hosting this afternoon's uh, tweet chat on one of the new papers that's just been published today in the journal Anesthesia that's looking at the impact of perioperative COVID-19 infection on post-operative outcomes. Uh, I'm delighted to have two of the authors of this study uh, who are participating in this chat today, and I'll just let them introduce themselves as they'll do a far better job than I could ever do. So if we start with Alwyn. Hi, thank you, Matt. Uh, my name's Alwyn Kotsi. I'm a consultant anaesthetist in Leeds. My clinical practice is perioperative medicine, um, liver transplantation, and then various other bits and bobs, as we all do. Um, I've been interested in the, the primary secondary care interface for a while, um, and the my involvement with Open Safely and with this paper primarily springs from that. Thanks very much for asking. Thank you. And somebody who probably needs little introduction to any of our viewers, Ramani. Hi, Matt. Hi, Owen. Uh, nice to see you all. Nice to be here. I can't see anyone else. Um, I'm Ramani Munisinger. I'm a clinician by background. Uh, I still do a pre-assessment clinic at UCLH, which is my clinical home. Um, and I've got a role at UCL as a professor of perioptive medicine and at NHS England as national clinical director for critical and perioptive care. I should say that I can't speak on behalf of NHS England today. So I'm, what I'm going to talk about is my personal views based on the paper and everything else. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Ramani. Thank you both for um, coming and giving up your valuable time today to help share the message, this very important paper. Um, the paper is free and open access and is available today on the journal website if people haven't had the chance, but we'll, we'll run through the major points and try to discuss some of the clinical implications, we think. Um, so, Alwyn, if we could start with you. Um, some of our readers and watchers won't have come across the Open Safety database, even though it's done several important pieces of work. Could you run through exactly what that is and how you utilised it in this study? Yeah, absolutely. So, Open Safety, in some ways, is, is the mother of all linked data sets, in, in England at least. Um, back in 2020, the then Secretary of State for Health issued COPE, Control of Patient Information Regulations, using powers granted under the Health and Social Care Act of 2002, so a different government altogether. And effectively, those powers allowed the Secretary of State to require all healthcare organisations in England to provide data, identifiable data, to the authority for purposes of the pandemic response. So you and I, Ramani, all of our data is in there and has been reported. And importantly, we get no way of opting out. Now, so the, the requirement for individual patient consent has been set aside under the Health and Social Care Act. Now, when actually most healthcare data in the UK sits in primary care, so when the big two primary care records providers, EMIS and TPP, were required to provide data to NHS England, they, along with NHS England, did something which was really quite responsible, I think, which is to say, well, we're required to provide this and we're required to facilitate research and analyses, but we are nevertheless going to try and take some genuinely cutting edge measures to try and 
protect individual confidentiality. You and I can't opt out, but at least our confidentiality can be protected. So what they did was the Office of National Statistics and the HES databases, SUS, the hospital data, actually was encrypted and imported into the primary care data centers. So whilst you and I can't opt out, at least we are exposed to no additional risk because our research data sits in the same server, in the same computer, under the same security where it would do day-to-day -day for our direct care. Um, and then as a researcher, there, are, there is a, a, a set of technical safeguards applied over this linked data set. So you have to take the analysis to the data. So when we wrote our analytic code to define the cohorts, define the analyses we want to do, even define the graphs we want to draw, we had to do those before we saw the data and before we could see the data. And that code was developed against a high fidelity simulated data set, fake primary care and secondary care linked data, purely so that we could see the code works. And then once you see the code works, before you can do any, any analyses or anything, you hand it over. And there's a second set of technical platform individuals that then run your data against the live data sets inside the primary care record centers, but they don't see the data either. So the only thing that leaves of Matt Wiles or Ramani Munisinga's data, the only thing that leaves where your, um, uh, where your record was is the answer to the question. That's it. That's the only thing that anybody ever sees. So you get this rather interesting juxtaposition almost that you have a very representative data set. There is no selection bias. Nobody gets to opt out. Nobody has to opt in. But at the same time, our, as individuals, we can be really reassured that our confidentiality is absolutely protected. Um, in terms of how we use this, as I said, I've been interested in the primary care, secondary care interface for a while. And actually, before the pandemic, had done some work with TPP. So one of the two um, big primary care record providers to try and look at, well, what do GPs know at the point of referral that may enable us to do risk prediction modeling at the point of referral rather than once the patient's in hospital, as we currently do. Um, now, that was interrupted in no small part by this rather inconvenient pandemic. Um, but then when the Open Safely stuff started coming out and I saw the names of the individuals, Chris Bates and others that I'd been working with at TPP, it, it seemed a, a reasonable leap to make. So yeah, so it sounds like a fantastic resource. So it's you know it's completely safe from the the patient's end, and also as a as someone who critically appraises the research that comes in, this is this is a data set you can't p hack on because you have to ask the question and send it in, and then an answer appears. You can't just run multiple codes to try and find the answer you're looking for. Well, or or if 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 we have, we can, 
But if we have, that would be blatantly obvious because all the code is discoverable. So even if we did, and even if we managed to obfuscate that in a paper, the code is, is publicly available, so it's discoverable. Okay, so using this fantastic resource, what was your sort of rationale behind running this study? And then if you just sort of summarize the key messages you think that the audience need to know. Yes, yeah, so the, the question if somebody catches COVID while they're on a waiting list um, or if they need surgery shortly after COVID infection has been one that has impacted us clinically significantly. And I think our clinical experience has been that although the guidance in the UK has changed and is really explicit about individualized risk, risk-based decision-making, the challenge in a busy, high-throughput surgical pathway is that people want numbers um, and they, they want an expeditious way of, of making those decisions. And there is a balance, like it or not, between individualized risk-based decision-making and efficient pathways, running pathways efficiently. Now, COVID surge was a fantastic paper. It was precisely the paper we needed at the time. It was precisely, it was a single global answer. That's what we needed in 2020. Um, in 2023, it probably isn't what we need anymore. And we felt now that a lot of things have happened, um, recurrent infection societies have opened up, vaccination, better treatments for severe COVID, et cetera, et cetera, it was time to, to ask that question again. So we modeled our paper as closely as we could on the COVID surge analysis so that you can, with all the caveats that this is a completely different study design um, and a completely different method, we intentionally modeled on COVID surge as much as we could. And the key messages that we found, so as, as a clinician now, because I mean, I think most people are familiar with COVID surge, but I think, I think you found something fairly dramatically yes. different, really. Yes, so, so we, we found one thing that COVID surge also found, which is that risk after a COVID infection is increased and that risk decays slowly over a number of weeks. That was found in COVID search and that is found in our paper too. What we found that's very different is that the baseline is much lower than what they found in COVID search. So shortly after a COVID infection, COVID surge, the mortality rate approached, uh, what was it? I, it was well over 5%. Um, and it decayed slowly over the first seven weeks or so. And we found a mortality rate of less than half a percent in the corresponding time periods, um, decreasing slowly over time again. So the the baseline is much, much lower than than what it was. Yeah, it was, it's, it's quite dramatic. Yeah, I think it was a, a, it a 9% within the first two weeks in COVID surge, and obviously a lot, lot lower now. Um, why do you think this dramatic change has happened? Is this to do with the study or to do with the population or to do with how we're working now? 
post-pandemic? I think it's a bit of both. Um, the first thing is COVID surge was a global sample. It was precisely the study we needed at the time. But we know that there are huge inequities, injustices really, in access to healthcare across the world, surgical healthcare in particular, and in the, the quality and the resource availability um, once people manage to access healthcare. So when you mix data from rich countries with data from poor countries, the average is always going to reflect that injustice, as I say. Um, we saw an interesting thing, which is in England, even before the COVID surge recommendation came out, we were already doing very few operations in people shortly after COVID infection. Um, now, that may partly be chance. It may partly be a reflection of how centrally controlled the English Health Service was and consequently how quickly we could pivot away from surgery to COVID critical care. You'll we'll all remember our operating theatres became de facto intensive care units and so on. So it may very well be that we were coincidentally doing what COVID surge said, subsequently said we should do before they said it, at least partly because we were doing so few operations. So Ramli, I was quite interested that our new, our new baseline, if you take seven weeks as the baseline, 0.2% mortality, that that's 0.1, I mean, it's twice what it was pre-pandemic as a pre-op expert. Um, any thoughts? Is, does this represent, have we, is this a deconditioned long waiting list that had little access to primary care? Is this the fact our normal rehabilitation pathways haven't quite fired up to normal? Or is there is this a lingering legacy of a viral in disease that most people may have been exposed to by now that we don't entirely understand what this means for the future? Yeah, I think we can hypothesise, Matt, but we can't be sure. And I think all of your suggestions are reasonable. Um, and I think, you know, these are small percentages, even if the numbers that are affected by it are very significant. Um, and so there will be some error margins around all of these estimates as well, of course. But I think um, all the reasons that we see on a day-to-day -day basis, patients have waited longer for surgery on the whole, irrespective of the issue around acute COVID infection. Uh, patients are deconditioned, as you've said. You know, there's a whole, but and then that's not even considering all of the sort of psychosocial issues that have affected all of us um, that have, you know, unmeasurable impact on surgical outcome for individual patients we don't we don't know what the impact of those things are and yet we know that in general life has become harder for everybody um and so uh, and particularly for groups that were always um at risk like for example the deprived like for example people from some ethnic minorities so i think that there are a whole host of reasons why overall surgical risk might have gone up uh since prior to the pandemic. But the good news, as Owen has already said, is that overall, uh, by comparison to the global surge population, the good news for us, at least in the English NHS, is that, you know, surgical um, outcome for the majority of patients, surgery is a low risk event on the whole. Um, but there are particular groups of patients on an individualised basis 
who are higher risk. We've always known this, and they, these data just emphasise that further. So re really thinking about on the back of this, uh, Ramini again, sorry, um, we really need to take not the initial um, data that came from the COVID surge, that's sort of very line in the sand seven weeks, uh, and really move much towards the updated guidance was that we need to contextualise our patient with the timescale. Um, what sort of things do you think we do need to weigh up in making this risk-benefit decision? Because certainly delaying surgery for anybody, given the time they've been waiting, almost feels like it should be a never event. Uh, I don't think anybody cancelled an operation easily, but now it really feels like it has to be uh, an absolute black and white picture to even consider sending someone home from uh, your hospital without performing a surgery they've waited maybe two years for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, okay, so the audience will largely know, I'm sure, that there were two specific sets of UK guidelines. There was an initial UK guideline um, that was published in Anesthesia Journal uh, that was cross-disciplinary, um, joint between different organisations, including the College and the Association and CPOC. And uh, based on the original COVID surge study suggested that we shouldn't be operating on patients unless it was absolutely essential to do so um, with a lower lapse of seven weeks after a COVID infection. Okay. And then an update came out uh, over a year ago, which um, suggested that actually given the way that everything had changed, vaccination program, a great success, potentially milder variants, our general um, understanding of COVID itself and the impact that it was having on people, that it was much more appropriate to take a much more individualized risk stratified approach to how one made a decision about the timing of surgery after a COVID infection, taking into consideration patient factors, surgical factors, severity of COVID infection, type of anaesthetic, and a bunch of other things as well. Now, um, as Alwyn's already alluded to, um, I think we, from, we don't have any data to support this, but I think the clinical impression that I have and talking to colleagues in lots of different hospitals and talking to people that are responsible for elective recovery um, the, the the penetration of that update has not been complete. So people are still taking the most risk averse uh, approach and just saying, you had a COVID infection, you're going to wait seven weeks minimum. And that's that. Unless it was either emergency surgery, obviously, or in some cases, you know, some cancer operations and so on. Now, what I think we should use this paper to try and support is re-looking at those guidelines and re-emphasizing the messages from those guidelines that on an individual patient basis, we should look at their individualized risk of poor outcomes from surgery, 30-day mortality, whatever you want to look at, and then consider the potential risk of a COVID infection on top of those baseline risks and use that to make a decision about the timing of surgery if there's been a recent COVID infection. So on one hand, for the patient having a very big operation, let's say uh, colorectal resection for cancer, your predominant thinking is going to be, well, okay, this is a high risk population. This is a high risk procedure. My patient's individualized risk of mortality is whatever it is using whatever risk model you choose. 
And then on top of that, they've had a COVID infection. Let's talk to the patient. Let's talk to the oncologist. Let's make a decision. Let's talk to the surgeon about the likelihood of disease progression about, and then make a decision about waiting or going ahead. And in many cases, if the infection has been mild and it's four weeks ago, I would hope that people would go ahead, but it would have to be taken on an individual basis. The flip side of that is the very low risk patient, the, the, the young woman coming for a minor gynae procedure in the outpatient setting. And, and her risk of an adverse outcome after a recent COVID infection is low because her overall risk is low. And having had a recent COVID infection in this young fit person who's still going running is, is still going to be low. So as long as she's not putting anybody else at risk, then it's likely that proceeding with the procedure is going to be something that she might want to do if you were able to make a shared decision with her, because it's not going to disrupt her life to upend all her plans and you know, change all the arrangements that she'd made to be able to come and have this procedure done. So the overall approach has to be about individualized decision making, decision making based on an individualized estimate of risk for that patient based on the totality of their comorbidities, the type of surgery they're having and the urgency of the surgery they're having. And then you, in addition, take into consideration a recent COVID infection and the likely impact that's going to have. And then you come to a shared decision with them and, of course, with the rest of the multidisciplinary team. So. Uh essentially i think so whereas previously we took seven weeks as the hard the hard ceiling we're now saying actually is two weeks the hard ceiling and then we move into the zone of individualized risk benefits for anything greater than 14 days would that would that be sort of a reasonable approach for most career units to take do you think so I, I think so, because less than two weeks, I don't think is a good idea, both on the basis of the data, but also the potential risk of nosocomial infection if the patient's in a healthcare setting and so on. Um, and then I think that uh, the beyond that, yeah, I think it needs to be an individualised risk, because as Owen's already alluded to, that the risks associated at population level from this Open Safely paper at population level, you can see that tapering that we saw with also COVID surge, that the further out that you go from the timing of your infection, the lower the risks become. But this is all about relative risk and taking into consideration uh, the procedure that the patient's having and the risks of not proceeding. And the risks of not proceeding on the day that you were expecting to do that are not just about the mortality or morbidity risks. It's about the impact it has on the rest of the patient's life. And that's the thing you've got to talk to the patient about. So this is another opportunity to really emphasise the importance of shared decision making with patients. So moving back to Arwen, I'm just wondering whether you could think about what we, what you saw as some of the main strengths and limitations of this work. I mean, I think there are numerous strengths that we've alluded to. Um, I was wondering about um, some bits you obviously didn't have data to, like um, there was, we don't know about, you talked about cardiovascular respiratory complications, but not um venous thromboembolic just one source and I also assume you don't know whether these patients were resolved I mean you, you'd assume they'd be asymptomatic if they were to have surgery but all, also um previous other work we published data on pediatric cases that said um it wasn't necessarily duration of time after index case it was the presence of symptoms and complete resolution versus lingering symptoms were two very very different populations 
Yes, absolutely. So, so I, I think I think our strengths are that we intentionally modelled on what's gone before, so that you can make a sensible comparison. I think in, in Ramani's interested in risk prediction. I am too. There, there is a weakness in the literature, which is that everybody starts from developing their own model from their own data, and then we just repeat, repeat, and repeat the cycle. So. We modeled on COVID surge intentionally so you can make sensible comparisons with all the caveats that, that we've already mentioned. What we've done is discoverable. If there was p-hacking or any shenanigans going on, only thing anyone has to do is go and look at the code. It's, it's all discoverable. We can't hide what we did. Um, we took a cautious approach to statistical adjustment and we chose to present unadjusted data um, that was for that that was intentional um, some of the weaknesses I, I think you're right I mean the problem is that even in a data set of over three and a half million patients because the number of people who were operated on within seven weeks of COVID were so small, even in that big data set, we started running into individual disclusivity issues quite early on. So we, for instance, couldn't stratify people by age because all that happens is you end up with a table that says redacted everywhere um, because the redaction happens automatically within the within the platform so there were some analyses symptoms for instance we know that so-called long covid is actually quite poorly coded in that particular primary care database it's better for or the, the coded prevalence is lower in one primary care database than another and there's no good population reason why that should be the case so there were some questions which which we couldn't answer, even in a cohort this size. Um, and we've mentioned, we've alluded COVID uh, to COVID surge a few times. I mean, we've been waiting, I think COVID surge three, um, stock data collection, maybe last March or April. Um, do you think whatever that shows, accepting the limitations, this is a global phenomenon. Do you think this is going to reinforce your findings or potentially... Because it, because it does have the global um, phenomenon and excludes minor surgery, whether it will actually just muddy the water at this point in time. I, 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 I just don't know. Um, because, uh, I, I mean, this was a service evaluation. This was, in principle, no different to our SHOs looking at a case series in the local hospital. Um, it's just that our ordered population happens to have been 40% of the population of England. That's that. It's just a difference of scale. Um, there's a lot of things that have happened in England. Our the the interplay between vaccination uptake, the variant circulating at any point the interplay with community prevalence and vaccination uptake and our surgical practice and so on. There's a lot of things that may be different, even amongst, even in other rich countries. So you may well find, and I, I think our, our recommendation, we made this recommendation in the paper, is we think other countries should look. So I'm really interested 
to see what COVID surge three showed. I would be very interested in a country by country breakdown of COVID surge three. So uh, fantastic. Um, I think we've, we've come to the end of our allotted time. Um, just thanks again to both of you for giving your time. It's it's really good to talk to our authors direct and to hear their views um, and to involve them in the dissemination of such an important study. So I'm very grateful for giving up your very valuable time. I know how busy you are. Um, that finishes our chat for this afternoon. I would just remind you the paper is free and open access and available for the website. And if you would like to uh, tweet your thoughts, uh, then that'd be great to push forward the discussion going forward. Uh, Ramni Alwyn, many thanks for your time again and good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for asking me. Bye now. Thank you. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>